The first of my posts to the Facebook group was a focused summary of chapters 19 and 20. Martin and Leora make their way to Nautilus, which, with its population of 70,000, could be considered either a large village or a very small city. It is regarded as the most moral and forward-thinking of the very moral and forward-thinking Iowan cities. It is distinguished by large houses with large lawns, fat fields of corn, the manufacture of such celebrated products as maize mealies and the daisy manure spreader, and Mugford Christian College. Leaving Leora at their hotel, Martin heads to City Hall, where he will report to Dr. Almas Pickerbaugh, director of the Department of Public Health. Lewis gives a quick glimpse into Pickerbaugh's politician's soul when he tells us, first, that he cultivates his natural resemblance to President Roosevelt, and second, that he never merely talks, but rather bubbles and makes orations. Martin forces an appearance of interest in the long seminar that ensues. Pickerbaugh sermonizes about his desire to become at once a Roosevelt and a Longfellow, or perhaps a Kipling, of public health. He boasts of selling his ideal of better health as well as the most inspired evangelists. He shares examples of his humble and, from our perspective, cringeworthy poetry, and proclaims, not so humbly, that it is quoted everywhere. He shares his volume of newspaper clippings, detailing his efforts for the public wheel. Then, in a moment of dubious modesty, he says his own poetry doesn't compare to the originality and swing of Chum Frinks, presenting as evidence Frinks' poem about Pickerbaugh himself, the two-fisted fightin' poet doc who stands for health like Gibraltar's rock. In a pamphlet called Pickerbaugh's Pickings, he recommends, in verse and aphorisms, good health, good roads, good business, and a single standard of morality, and backs up all his injunctions with statistics as sound as those the Reverend Ira Hinckley once used. Martin learns that Pickerbaugh holds a vast array of titles and awards, from superintendent of the Sunday School to president of the Ski and Hiking Club to winner of the prize for dancing the best Irish jig at the Harvest Moon Soiree. His various addresses have homey titles like Wanted, a man-sized feetball coach for Old Mugford, and Health First, Safety Second, and Booze Nowhere at All. Articles about him feature photos of him, his buxom wife, and eight bounding daughters, dressed up in matching costumes. On his way back to the hotel, Martin realizes that to any civilized man, the fact that Pickerbaugh advocated any reform would be reason enough for ignoring it. Then he curses himself for his superiority, and laments what is sure to be another failure. He tries to pump himself up into enthusiasm for the opportunity to work in a lab while Pickerbaugh gasses to conventions of morons. But when Leora asks him, well, he buries his head in her lap and clings to her for affection. Leora tries to reassure him that Pickerbaugh's flamboyance won't interfere with his work. The next day, he learns what his job will actually entail. 
He will be responsible for placating voluble voters, dictating correspondence, giving publicity, directing nurses, scolding the garbage company, tacking up placards, and buying paper clips. Leora puts it well when she says his job will take about 28 hours a day, but he can spend the rest of the time in research. Leora and Martin go to the Pickerbaugh home, where Pickerbaugh introduces them to his wife and his eight strapping daughters— whom, he says, present a picture of health in the home. From the eldest orchid to the youngest, the twins Arbuta and Gladiola, all of them are named for flowers, and Mrs. Pickerball laments the missed opportunity to name them for the jewels they are. They are all bouncing, blonde, pretty, musical, and clamorously clean-minded. Together they make up the Healthette Octet, who shame the filthy livers and filthy talkers into decency. Pickerbaugh talks of his ambitions to form healthette bands all across the country. At dinner, Pickerbaugh boasts of the salary he could have pulled down in private practice or in advertising, and of the honor of a job selling nothing but honesty and the brotherhood of man. After dinner, the children treat Martin and Leora to musical performances— including their famous health hymn. Oh, are you out for happiness or are you out for pelf? You owe it to the grand old flag to cultivate yourself. Immersed in this madness, Martin feels drunk and longs for a drink to sober him up. In an after-dinner game of charades, Martin becomes conscious of the attentions and of the brown eyes, virginal lips, and young bosom of Orchid. Her flushed young gaiety disturbs him, and for the first time he becomes afraid of Leora's eyes. For the rest of the evening, he sees that Orchid is observing him, and that Leora is observing them both. On their way home, Leora is irritable, and when Martin complains about Pickerbaugh's fool pieces about boozers— Leora uncharacteristically claims they are not so bad, and even calls them cute. Martin insists that men like Pickerbaugh destroy public health with their circusing, and the cause of Leora's irritability becomes clear when she responds that she will have no more hijinks with that orchid girl. Martin is defensive, claiming he can't even recall which of the eight girls she is. He goes for a walk to clear his mind, but his mind is a whirl with thoughts of Pickerbaugh's foolishness, Leora's anger, and Orchid's lips. When a policeman in an all-night lunch wagon says, in response to Martin's questioning, that Pickerbaugh is the boy who gets the idea of health into people's noodles, Martin resolves to dedicate himself to the health department and not to fail again. Martin and Leora settle into a two-family house, and they begin to be courted by the nice society of Nautilus. A few days after his arrival, he receives an unexpected call from Irving Waters, a classmate from Winnemac, hard to recall because he was notable only for being appallingly normal. Waters and his wife live in Nautilus, where he has established a nice little practice. Martin tries vigorously to evade his invitations— but a week later, he and Leora find themselves at the Waters' home for lunch. Waters bombards Martin with social climbing and self-serving admonitions. Meet the right people, 
join the country club and take up golf. Beware Pickerbaugh's socialistic tendencies and his public health clinics that tread on the toes of the private doctors. And Mrs. Waters assaults Leora with the painful and irrelevant advice that she absolutely must have children. After their miserable afternoon, Martin decides that Pickerbaugh must be a saint if Waters roasts him. Between Pickerbaugh and the incessant invitations of Irving Waters, Martin and Leora are drafted into Nautilus society, and they fall into the habit of social ease, even adapting to small talk. Martin begins to enjoy the charms of respectability, and especially to enjoy the admiration of Orchid. While Martin is trying to regain his footing in the lab, he is coaxed into making his first speech at the Star of Hope Universalist Church. He approaches the hall, desperate with embarrassment at the crowd of mature, responsible people there to hear him, feeling he hasn't a darn thing to say. As he stands before what seems like millions of faces staring at him, he suffers a ghastly fright. Then he begins, and somehow his voice seems to be producing reasonable words. He finds Leora, nodding with reassurance, and he finds Orchid flashing admiration. At the end, he receives a thunder of enthusiastic applause. He then finds himself holding Orchid's hands as she warbles praise, while Leora looks on at them like a wife. As they walk home, Leora is again irritably contrarian. Martin fishes for praise, and she says she hopes he won't have to continue this silly gassing before these stupid people. She says there are more important things he should be doing, and for the next week, Martin stews over the indignity. They argue vigorously, on the surface, about what Leora calls the ridiculous simpering of Pickerbaugh's approach to public health, but maybe, more fundamentally, about Martin's simpering over Orchid. Eventually, they repent of their quarreling, but Leora still insists that Martin is not a booster, but a lie hunter, and she complains that she is tiring of his mistakes. So it is in a wry mood that they go to the Pickerbaugh's snow picnic. In this mood, Leora enjoys the attention of the school physician, and Martin defensively turns to the affection of Orchid. He and Orchid ski together down the hill, fall, and wrestle in the snow. Returning to the cabin, he looks at her like he might kiss her, and she looks back like she would not mind. And they enjoy the intimacy of mutual understanding. Leora makes no comments, but for days there is a chill air about her that Martin does not investigate. The next of my posts was called Lewis's Descriptors. I'm often surprised by the mileage that Sinclair Lewis can get from a single, well-placed, and creatively used descriptor. Sometimes these turns of phrase delight me so much they make me laugh out loud. In describing Nautilus, with its miles of corn in undeviating rows, he refers to the sense of merciless growth the stranger feels trudging along corn-walled roads. Next time you are driving through the cornfields of Iowa that stretch to the horizon in every direction, you can recall Lewis's description of that merciless growth. In describing the one large hotel in Nautilus, 
Lewis describes it as frenziedly modern. In a single word, he has captured the owner's desperation to make it as big city and cutting edge as possible. One of my favorites in this chapter, one that made me giggle, was his description of the Pickerball girls as clamorously clean-minded. Again, a single word shows us that their purity is not something serenely personal, but rather something loudly worn on their sleeves. I also love the description of Waters as incredibly married. (laughs) His marriage, like everything else in his life, seems the subject of determined work, work whose ultimate goal is ascension up a social ladder. He isn't happily married, he is incredibly married. Finally, though there are countless others to choose from, I liked the description of Martin's standing before the crowd, who are staring at his apologetic insignificance. Gripped with anxiety about his speech, everything about his posture suggests that he has no business on that stage and that he is sorry for imposing himself on them. He feels not just insignificant, but apologetic for it. All this reminds me of a phrase once coined by my friend Marianne for the feeling of being embarrassed by witnessing someone else's embarrassment. She called it empathetic embarrassment. That's a great Lewis-like descriptor. Watch for more yourself in Aerosmith, or in life in general. The last of my posts was called, Oh, Orchid. Will it surprise you if I say that Orchid is one of my very favorite characters in this book? That a decade later, she is one of the handful I recall the most vividly, and with the most gratitude? That demands explanation, I know. Because some of you, with protective affection for Leora, are probably pretty mad about Orchid. I think Sinclair Lewis uses Orchid to expose a painfully common and terribly dangerous human tendency to seek self-esteem in the romantic attentions of a conventionally attractive girl. I would say woman, but Orchid is no woman. She is a girl, as probably are most Orchids. I think that it should be noted that when Orchid appears on the scene, Martin has nearly bottomed out. He whined his way through medical school, alienating his peers with complaints about their commercialistic ambitions. He abandoned the one mentor who seemed to embody his ideals. He failed to achieve his romantic vision of life as a country doctor. And now, his dreams of research and of changing the world through public health have come crashing into the prosaic reality of Pickerbaugh. He has, as always, the love and support of the patient and faithful Leora. But he doesn't seem to feel much love for himself. It is in just such a state that the admiring eyes of an orchid can wield their most spellbinding power. Orchid, fresh-faced and naive, sees Martin the way he wants to see himself, as together and strong and attractive. His own insecurities dissolve into the reassurance of her amorous gaze. That gaze, combined with all the conventional features of the abstracted romantic ideal, her youth her vitality, her pretty ankles and pouty lips, is irresistible to his ego. It is also important to note that there is absolutely nothing about Orchid herself that would inspire the least bit of interest in Martin. 
she, recall, is one of the simpering singers of the Helfet Octet. Everything she says is blandly praiseworthy and empty of real meaning. Under a thin veneer of virtue, she is a wily and determined flirt. And she's nineteen. Martin is not drawn to her. He is drawn to the self-esteem that comes from her abstracted combination of attractiveness and fawning admiration. Leora sees straight through it all, and though she indulges in uncharacteristic defensiveness and irritability, she is also, I think, profoundly patient. She knows that Orchid has nothing on her, and that she just has to wait for Martin to get this out of his system and figure it out. So, that's why I love Orchid. Because she is an illuminating conceptualization of a human foible very real. The next time you see someone enjoying the jolt of self-esteem that comes from the attentions of a pretty young thing, just sigh and think, Oh, Orchid. <laughs>